You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. U.S. CERT warns of a North Korean rat. Researchers find vulnerable WPA2 handshake implementations. A sales call results in inadvertent data exposure. Notes on Black Hat, circumspection, hype, barkers, and artificial intelligence. Russia braces for U.S. sanctions and promises retaliation. South Korea will reorganize its cyber command. And the PGA is hit with ransomware. From the Black Hat Conference in Las Vegas, it's a nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live here. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, August 10th, 2018. U.S. CERT has warned of a new remote access Trojan released by North Korea. McAfee and Intezer have conducted joint research into Pyongyang's attack tools, and they've found considerable code reuse. Some of the code that continues in use goes back to 2009's Bramble, one of the earlier malware strains to come from the DPRK. Code reuse is an obvious labor saver. Intezer is particularly confident that DPRK code reuse offers strong evidence for attribution. They call it the malware's DNA. More evidence of the importance of secure implementation comes from the Netherlands. Researchers at KU Leuven report finding vulnerabilities in implementations of the widely used WPA2's four-way handshake. And Engadget reports that Amazon Web Services accidentally exposed GoDaddy information in the course of a sales call with a domain host. Sales staffs take note. This isn't how you become a closer. Black Hat has wrapped... The event was an occasion of expected hype, but also some introspection by the security sector. The initial keynote by Google's Parisa Tabriz urged those in attendance to commit to the long work of enhancing security by working through fundamental causes, picking well-thought-out achievable objectives, and working toward increased collaboration with those outside the security industry. Tabriz, who leads both Chrome Security and Project Zero at Google, offered what amounted to a plea for well-structured, modestly hyped, and disciplined engineering. And there did seem to be some introspection going on, albeit mediated by more noise than a state fair's midway. Curiously, the Barker's pitches in the booths that packed the exhibit floor seemed more modest and introspective than did many of the briefings, which tended toward spectacle and alarmism. The Martians have landed, 
and the man is out to get you. If there was one theme that emerged from listening to the Barkers, who, it must be said, were often quite interesting, it was that the industry recognizes one of the first principles of North American economic reality. Capital is cheap and labor is expensive. The solutions they pitched offered to save the users time. That's not simply time to detection or time to response, but the time employees would need to commit to using the solution, defending an enterprise, or remediating an attack. The solutions on offer also promised that they would de-skill some of the more advanced forms of technical expertise, thereby enabling junior analysts and other personnel to function at higher levels. Artificial intelligence was, as expected, very much a presence on the floor at Black Hat. The vendors offering artificial intelligence and machine learning were too numerous to count. There was some healthy skepticism about the larger and more extreme claims for AI, we stopped by one of the leading AI security firms, Silence, well known for its commitment to using artificial intelligence in security solutions, and asked if they would claim complete detection of unknown threats with mathematical certainty. Their quick, direct, reassuring, and justifiably irritated answer was, Of course not. No one can do that. It's impossible. But that AI has considerable utility in security seems beyond question, Perfect insight and omniscient detection aren't preconditions of usefulness. One vendor that wants very much for people to understand why algorithmic certainty is impossible with respect to detection is Komodo. They were keen to explain that detection of unknown threats is a formally undecidable problem, a fact they think is insufficiently appreciated. Their alternative to what they would describe as naive and dangerous reliance on machines is default-deny protection coupled with default-allow usability. This morning, Komodo issued what it calls a zero-day challenge, inviting AV users, endpoint security vendors, and others to submit any malware sample of their choice. The company will run it through its Valkyrie verdicting engine to see if the samples pass through. Komodo promises to publish Valkyrie's failures as well as its successes, the company's CEO, Steve Subar, views the challenge as a contribution to cutting through what he sees as industry hype. He also sees it as a contribution to better, more transparent testing of tools and services. The Russian government is bracing for U.S. sanctions and has promised retaliation in kind. The U.S. sanctions are directed first against Russian breaches of chemical weapons treaties in the Novichok incident, which Russia denies, and second against election meddling. The second class of sanctions, which Russian sources suggest the Kremlin thinks are soon to be tightened by the U.S. Congress, appears to be the more threatening. Russia also continues to deny election-related influence operations, but few believe that either. A full-blown series of tit-for-tat sanctions would seem to play into U.S. strengths. It's difficult to see the economic bite Russian measures against the U.S. might have, so there may well be an upsurge in cyber operations against U.S. targets, whatever Moscow might be saying now. South Korea's troubled cyber command is about to undergo reorganization. Seoul's Defense Reform 2.0 plans will rename the organization as the Cyber Operations Command and strip it of its former responsibilities for psychological operations. The Republic of Korea knows it lives in a very rough neighborhood of cyberspace, and it wants a dominant capability there, but it also doesn't want a repetition of the domestic election meddling scandals Cyber Command had become enmeshed in. 
Finally, the PGA was hit with a ransomware attack just before its current gold championship tournament got underway. Investigation and remediation are in progress, but there's widespread speculation that the ransomware used was a strain of BitPamer. The hoods want their ransom in cryptocurrency. The Register's headline and deck are worth quoting, Oh, for putt's sake. Golforg PGA bunkered up by ransomware attack just days before tournament. That's rough, bet they were well teed off. If you've been looking for a pun, forget about it. The Register's headline writers have used up the world's supply. Well done, Register. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Last night, as the Black Hat Conference was winding down, our partners at Terbium Labs hosted a special event featuring a discussion with Russian authors Andrei Soldatov and Irina Boragon. Their latest book is titled The Red Web, The Struggle Between Russia's Digital Dictators and the New Online Revolutionaries. Our first book, uh, which was published in 2010, uh, was about the Russian security services. But a few years later, uh, by 2011, when we got so-called Moscow protests prompted by the Arab Spring to some degree, uh, we realized that new technologies, specifically social media, uh, became a very important thing for, for the Russian political life. And we decided to look into uh, what's going on with the Russian Internet. And uh, it, as it happens, uh, it was the moment the Kremlin started paying attention to the Internet and actually started a huge offensive on Internet freedoms. And right since 2012, we got all kinds of things from Internet filtering and censorship and advanced uh, surveillance. Uh, so actually, the book is a combination of these things. as an investigation 
of how we got to 2015, 2016 in terms of internet freedoms and connectivity and activities of activists and, and, and journalists and so on and so forth. So for our listeners here in the United States, how is it different in Russia than it is here in terms of how the surveillance state is run and operated? Uh, you know that uh, here in the United States, your security services have a big possibilities to intercept uh, electronic information and surveil on people because you have the best communications in the world and the best uh, uh, surveillance facilities uh, and also data storage. Russia uh, is a country uh, not so advanced in technical and technical direction. They mentioned but. Uh, but uh, it, this is an authoritative state, so the authoritarian state. state, so the authorities are very interested on gathering information on people, especially uh, on citizens, especially if they are uh, some kind of dissidents or, uh, or some kind of opposing the Kremlin or just have another point of view than the Kremlin. So um, if, here, the, uh, if here in the United States uh, mass surveillance are in place, in Russia, uh, we are talking about targeted surveillance, uh, and the targets are activists, opposition politicians, uh, dissidents, and people with, with, with different opinions than the Kremlin. Part of what your book covers is the rise of President Putin. Can you describe for us how did his rise to power parallel how they're doing things when it comes to surveillance and how he chooses to go about that? Uh, yeah, it's actually quite interesting that uh, when uh, Vladimir Putin became the chief of the Russian Security Service in 1998, that was exactly the moment that the FSB got interested uh, in the Internet. So we have and had back in the 1990s a system of uh, surveillance we inherited from the Soviet Union, uh, which mostly dealt with uh, phone lines and uh, regular phones. And it was, very, it was very totalitarian because it was mostly actually developed by the KGB. Uh, it was updated, but nevertheless, it was still a KGB creature. So what the FSB decided to do in 1998, they decided to apply the same scheme to the Internet. And back then, it was mostly about emails. And that Putin, as director of the FSB, he promoted this idea, and despite the resistance, and lots of ISPs, uh, Internet service providers, were against it because we were forced to pay for this new equipment. Uh, we got lots of protests, uh, civil society was very against it, but nevertheless he pushed and we got this legislation already by 1999. And uh, he had a very first meeting uh, with uh, internet entrepreneurs. Uh, surprisingly, uh, he was quite liberal at this meeting and he uh, said some, some good things about internet li liberties and freedoms uh, because uh, he saw that these people in the room were mostly uh, very low for him. And uh, so it looks like for years, it, 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 well, he, he got this system of, of surveillance, but nevertheless, he didn't see the Internet as a big threat. And it's all changed in 2011, 2012, when we got the Moscow protest. And Putin got scared, actually, because he believed that uh, the Internet, actually, he said that, that the Internet was created by CIA. <laughs> and uh, he still believes this, and he believes that the, the U.S. State Department is always busy with uh, developing a new scheme, ominous uh, scheme to undermine his, uh, his, his regime. And that's why he introduced a lot of legislation, a lot of repressive things. 
Now, for the two of you being journalists in Russia, we hear stories of certainly about journalists being killed, um, often under mysterious circumstances. I mean, is this a con- as investigative journalists in particular? Is this a concern for you? Um, yes. <laughs> There are a lot of concerns for uh, for every honest journalist in Russia. So because the situation is not very favorable of them, if you tell if you tell truth to the people, you are in, in some kind of danger. It's also about uh, it's maybe a bit more subtle. It's not only about uh, intimidation and uh, and killings, but uh, the problem is that you might be deprived of your access to your audience. For instance, we have our books uh, published. At in the United States, not because we are so well. It's, it's such a obviously it's, it's a fascinating opportunity, but of course, a Russian journalist uh, wants to have access to to the, to the audience of, of of his country. But in our ways, the only way to get to our audience is to get our book published in the United States, and then patiently wait for a translation, which could happen and could not happen. Because now it's, it's up to, to, the, to the Russian publisher who would be brave enough to buy the license and to translate our book into Russian, written by a Russian journalist. So it's a tricky scheme, but it sort of gives you a picture of what's going on. What do you make of um, what I think we perceive as a puzzling relationship between our own president, President Trump, and President Putin? From your perspective, for, you know, from the other side of things, how, how, do, you, how do you interpret that? difficult to interpret because you know the last meeting was so so surprising for us because Trump showed himself as a quite weak and Putin demonstrated that he is in power so uh, it was tricky and um, uh, for me it seemed like it seems like like Putin really has some some compromising materials on Trump. And also, to be honest, we, we tracked these things uh, back in 2006, uh, 2016 when uh, you got uh, the election compromised by hackers. And it was absolutely clear from Moscow that Trump was a kind of favorite candidate for, for the Kremlin, uh, the Russian TV, everywhere. Trump was promoted and uh, Hillary Clinton was attacked all the time. But to be honest, it looks like it was, uh, they slightly overdid it <laughs> in a way because nobody actually believed uh, back in 2016 in Moscow that Trump could be the next president. Uh, what we tried to do, we tried to weaken Hillary Clinton. Uh, and it looks like we overdid it. And uh, to be honest, when after that, I had some conversations with uh, some uh, officials from the Kremlin, and they told me that, quite frankly, they would prefer now Hillary Clinton because she's much more predictable, even for, for Moscow. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting insight. For the average citizen in Russia... What is their perspective on privacy and their relationship with the Internet? We tried to promote the idea that you need to care about your privacy. And to be honest, it was a disaster for many years. Uh, we tried and tried and tried, and we had some events in Moscow. And you, you might get in, you, in a room maybe 12 people, maybe 10, because people were not really interested. But then the Kremlin made a huge mistake. Uh, they, they did two things. They actually First, they... Uh, they banned one of the biggest uh, uh, websites uh, when you can share videos for free. And you got the number of uh, Russian users of Tor Network, well, skyrocketing to the position number two uh, in the world, actually. And then they tried to block Pornhub. 
That was a huge mistake. And we got the first position, actually. So now if you check as uh, number of users of Tor uh, in, in the world, well, it was for the United States to occupy the first position. Now it's Russia. So finally, we got this message that we should care about privacy. We should care about circumventional tools. And we should care about uh, about secure messengers. Uh, so now it's, it's getting more and more popular. Yeah, that's fascinating that the, the, the blockage of Pornhub provided a powerful motivator for people to learn how to use privacy-enhancing tools. Yes, yes. It was it was sad. Before this moment, we was desperate because average people didn't feel any any interest to to to, to privacy online, and it was impossible to explain them that things uh, does matter. But after that, they need access to to Pornhub and to other information, and they start using circumvention tools. That was great. Our thanks to Andrei Soldatov and Irina Borogan. Their book is The Red Web, The Struggle Between Russia's Digital Dictators and the New Online Revolutionaries. Special thanks to our friends at Terbium Labs for hosting the event and coordinating the interview. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.